we're continuing to talk about the absorption of light. We'll continue to use a classical model today for how we treat absorption. So last time we used this classical electron oscillator model, which treated electrons as harmonic oscillators being driven by an electric field. That electric field is due to the light shining onto a material. And we say that the energy transferred to that harmonic oscillator, just through pure mechanics, is the energy that's absorbed from the, the light. And we found that depending on the frequency of the light, how close that was tuned to the resonant frequency of the oscillator affected that power transfer. And that gave rise to what we call absorption lines that make up the spectrum of, of a material. Okay, so. Our mechanical oscillator is usually thought of as a mass on a spring, and it has a particular resonant frequency at which it will oscillate if you displace it, and that was the same for our uh, electrical oscillator. Our, our charge was displaced from its neutri- uh, equilibrium position. And we started with just letting it go and uh, using the equation of motion to find at what frequency it would oscillate back and forth. That was our natural frequency. And then we allowed that charge to be driven by an electric field. And the equation of motion there is a differential equation. And by using phasor notation, we were able to turn that into an algebraic equation and solve it simply for the magnitude of the motion or the amplitude of the motion as a function of time. with an amplitude that depended on the frequency of which the light was driving it. So again, we find that the um, frequency at which you drive the interaction affects how much power is absorbed in the interaction. Another way of saying that material made up of these classical electron oscillators will not uniformly absorb any light, but they prefer to absorb light whose frequency is near their resonant frequency. And to find out how much power is extracted from uh, the optical field, when you have this displacement being driven by the electric field, we used the fact that power is force times velocity. This expression for displacement can be differentiated to get a velocity. Force is just due to the electric field acting on an electron. And that gave us this power. That power, when we plot it versus frequency, had what we call a Lorentzian line shape. Okay, so your second homework, which isn't due next Monday, because next Monday is Labor Day, so let's do the Wednesday after that, will be to go through that math again. So you'll want to start from F equals MA, and essentially you'll want to derive that. So it's outlined for you in the notes, and we did it last time. You can fill in a few of the gaps that I left in the mathematics. Any questions about that, the review? So today what we're going to do is we're going to use the same results and we're going to relate sort of these mathematical quantities that we came up with like gamma, um, omega naught. We're going to relate those to physical properties of a material. And we're going to Um, Look at some of the different terms that are used to describe how a material absorbs, things like the cross-section, 
the absorption line width, relate them to these, uh, these mathematical parameters to see how the observables relate to the map. OK, so let's look at our result and ask what it tells us um, if we were to measure the absorption spectrum of a material. And we assume that the material can be modeled as classical electron oscillators. We know the absorption spectrum would look like this. It's functional form. The power absorbed as a function of frequency should look like this. What does that tell us? If we can fit um, some spectrum to some free parameters. So let's say we do an experiment to measure power versus frequency. Two ways this experiment might look like. Um, you could have a white light source, say a light bulb, a slit, a lens, a prism, another lens, and then a uh, I'll say a CCD. CCD is a charge coupled device. It's just a, a camera. It's just the like film. It's the electronic film. Right? So that plus a lens would be your, your typical camera. Um, so the idea here is that white light contains many wavelength components. And those wavelength components are going to get refracted differently by the prism. And the image of this slit then gets focused down under the CCD, and the different wavelength components get imaged under different parts. And if you plot the power on the CCD versus displacement along the CCD, what you'd expect to see, what would that spectrum look like if we put into it nothing. We just have a white light source, prism, the lenses, and the CCD. There's no sample that we're measuring. Yeah, so it should be uniform. So remember, this displacement is going to be a function of the wavelength. And this is essentially saying there's equal power at all wavelengths. Okay, So it's white light. Now, uh, let's say we put in some sample chamber. And maybe we fill it with hydrogen. So hydrogen's a nice, uh, easy material to study because it's only got a single electron. So it's, there's, not a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of complexity. We can treat the electron as a classical electron oscillator. It's a gas. We don't have a lot of, uh, of phonons to deal with in the, in the material. And what would we expect this, uh, this spectrum to look like then? If we just had single classical electron oscillator. So a delta function. So this. Check. There may be several peaks due to different resonant frequencies. We haven't quite gotten there yet, though. So let's just assume there's only a single resonant frequency and there's a single peak. What will that peak look like? Will it be 
it's actually, it's actually going to be the, the inverse of that. What's going to happen is we've still got white light, but at regions where the wavelength of the light corresponds to a resonant frequency, we'll get power transferred to the, to the material, and that means less power transmitted, less power going through. So it's actually what we see is inverted. Okay, but the shape of that should be Lorentzian, based on what we, uh, we argued last time. It should be given by this. So there should be some background offset, and then this power um, describes the Lorentzian shape on top of that background. OK, so let's zoom in on this. And now we do this experiment. And we fit a Lorentzian curve to this. Maybe it fits very well, maybe it doesn't, but our, our Lorentzian curve has a few scale, scale factors. There's a height, there's a width with which you can stretch it out. So there's a few free parameters. What do knowledge of those parameters tell us about the material? Um, what about the center wavelength, the particular position on the CCD where the absorption occurs? Well, so assuming we know how different wavelengths refract here, we can take the position and work out a wavelength associated with that. Right? Um, and so if we know the wavelength associated with it, if you remember that we talked about um, a charge being displaced from equilibrium, the bond that it has, in this case with the nucleus, uh, provides a restoring force. And the strength of that restoring force affects the resonant frequency. It tells us about the bond strength. Okay, so the wavelength tells us about the bond strength. So that lets you differentiate between, for example, different types of bonds. Would a strong bond have a stiffer spring constant or a weaker spring constant? Stiffer. Would a stiffer spring constant result in a higher resonant frequency or a lower resonant frequency? Higher. Remember, uh, the resonant frequency, if written in terms of a mass on a spring, is square root of k over m. So a stiffer spring constant, a larger value for k, means a higher resonant frequency. Does that correspond to a higher wavelength or a shorter wavelength that gets absorbed? Shorter. Okay, so the shorter wavelengths correspond to stronger bonds. Okay, so another parameter is this line width, the full width half max. Okay, and we argued last time that that line width is just gamma. Gamma was our uh, constant of proportionality between the damping force and velocity. And you'll prove that in the next homework. So what, does, what could the line width tell us about the material? 
what might cause damping? You've got a single electron. It's oscillating back and forth. If it's just in a vacuum, there's nothing around it, and there's a nucleus to provide the restoring force, but it's just oscillating. Uh, do you expect that to oscillate longer or for a shorter time than if it's in a gas? Less. Less than a gas. Why? So one mechanism of damping is collisions. So that line width might tell us, for example, something about the density of the material. Okay, we'd expect going from a single atom in isolation to a dense material that the line width would get broader. The damping would get greater. And then the amount of power absorbed. So I kind of sh show this as if all the power is absorbed and the power is going to zero. But that may not be zero. And zero may be down here, here. So the relative amount of power tells us something as well. It might also tell us about the density. If it's a gas. So we'll, we'll see today that you may have a sparse enough gas that essentially not all the photons are hitting an atom. Or it may tell you about isotopes. You may have different isotopes of an atom and they will have different resonant frequencies. So you may find that you have different absorption lines closely spaced due to different isotopes. And the relative magnitude of those absorption lines is proportional to the relative concentration of the isotopes. Okay, so those are just some of the things you can learn uh, from this simple Lorentzian absorption line that we derived. Okay, so that's the motivation for why we're investigating this. Yeah, so you'd have to calibrate your system in order to know the relationship between X and frequency. So you could take some standard reference lines here, say a, a mercury arc lamp, a sodium arc lamp with known wavelengths, and look at where the light falls on this CCD, and then interpolate to get a function between wavelength and position. Uh, you would certainly expect for small Displacement along x, it would be linear, but it would always require some calibration. Um, so I mentioned this is one way to do this experiment. You could also replace this white light source with a laser. The laser is essentially monochromatic, so it only has a single frequency. But if we can tune it, well, let me let me draw a separate separate experiment here. You could do a similar experiment where you have a tunable laser where you have some knob that controls the frequency. And that laser could pass through your sample and onto a photodetector.
And there, instead of turning on your light source and taking a single shot of what the absorbed power is at all these different positions, you would build up this spectrum, power versus, say, frequency. And you'd sweep the frequency. And as you sweep it, measure the power. You'd record discreetly, essentially, points along that spectrum. So I just mentioned that because that's where we're working towards right? with, the, with the lasers. Not relevant which method you would use here. Either way, you can recover this type of spectrum. OK, so let's talk about some material properties um, and some of the terms we use to describe materials and relate those back to some of these some of the mathematics. Um, so what we want to, the, the two optical properties of material that we're interested in are index of refraction and uh, absorption. So that's what we're working towards. So we'll start with something called the atomic susceptibility. It sort of connects microscopically what's going on to some of these macroscopic properties. So the atomic susceptibility, it's this thing chi. You may have seen this in 210, your uh, electricity and magnetism class, if you've taken that. And it is the response of a macroscopic material to a driving electric field. So we'll define that um, mathematically on the next slide. So you put in light. We expect for a single molecule the electron cloud slosh around as it's driven by the electric field. But when you add up all the molecules in your material, all those electron clouds sloshing around in phase result in some macroscopic polarization. So polarization meaning uh, displacement of charge. It's a macroscopic dipole moment that's oscillating at the optical frequency. And the tendency of the material to do that is given by this atomic susceptibility. So a low atomic, an atomic susceptibility of zero is a material that won't have any dipoles induced by an external electric field. And the higher the atomic susceptibility, the greater the net dipole moment is in the presence of an external field. OK, so some of the properties of electric fields. Uh, we have E, the magnitude of an electric field, and in material, we often talk about the electric displacement. Um, certainly, if you've taken uh, nonlinear optics, you've done a lot of work with the electric displacement. Um, and the electric displacement is really just the electric field that's externally induced plus the internally induced dipole moments that it induces. Okay, so this letter P here is what we call the material polarization. It's the net dipole in the material. That produces an electric field. There's the external electric field. This epsilon naught makes the units consistent. We add them up, and that's the total, what we call electric displacement in the material. Now, the polarization comes from the sum of all the dipoles that are created, all the microscopic dipoles. So if you have some number density, Actually, this is some number. I don't know. Number density. If you have some number density n of 
atoms per cubic meter, if you like, atoms per centimeter cubed, um, some number per unit volume. And each one has a dipole moment that's given by its charge times its displacement. We've calculated the amplitude of the displacement. <coughs> then we can say the total polarization is just that dipole moment per atom times that number of atoms. Okay, so the polarization is the dipole moment per unit volume. It's NEX. And I just mentioned that on this slide, P here represents material polarization. The previous couple slides, it represented power. And the term polarization is often used to refer to the direction of the optical electric field. So lots, lots of potential confusion here. So we just have to be a little bit careful. OK, so how do we, all these parameters relate together? We have the electric displacement inside of a material is due to the external electric field and the polarization. We now know the polarization is related to the microscopic displacement of the charges. And putting all that together gives us the atomic susceptibility. Okay, so it's probably worth me writing out a couple steps here. The electric displacement is epsilon E plus P. And if I write the polarization explicitly, as N E delta X. Actually, I'm going to write it as N Q delta X. So Q is my charge. And here I assume that charge is an electron, hence the negative sign. Here I want to be a little more general. Um, this displacement depends on the driving electric field. Or perhaps more useful, this polarization is proportional to the driving electric field. And the constant of proportionality is epsilon naught times the atomic susceptibility. Okay, and so that lets me write the electric displacement vector in terms of the external electric field vector as 
epsilon naught times 1 plus chi. We can also write the electric displacement is epsilon times the electric field. So epsilon has the same units as epsilon naught, right? It's called the permittivity of the material. Epsilon naught is the permittivity of a vacuum. And epsilon relates electric field to electric displacement. In a vacuum, that has a certain constant of proportionality. And as you have material, the presence of the material increases that constant of proportionality. So epsilon is 1 plus chi times epsilon naught. So where we're going with this is we want to get an expression for the index of refraction in terms of the parameters we've already derived. And the index of refraction, we can start with uh, our knowledge of what it is. What does the index of refraction tell us about a material? Okay, so if I wanted to write an expression for n in terms of the speed of light. Okay, so n is c over v. Right. So it's how fast light is in vacuum compared to the material. So light's always slower in a material, so this is always a number greater than 1. Now, I can manipulate this a little bit. Um, what is the speed of light in vacuum C in terms of things that look like this? Okay. And that's in a vacuum. What about in material? What do we do? We just drop the knot. So in the speed of light in a material, I'm writing the inverse of it. Looks the same, I just I don't have the knot. So the index of refraction can be written as square root of epsilon mu over epsilon naught mu naught. Okay, so this, this mu relates the magnetic field outside of material to the magnetic field inside of material. All the optical materials that we're going to deal with are non-magnetic. If they're non-magnetic, mu and mu naught are the same. Okay, so for our purposes, the index of refraction will be the square root of epsilon over epsilon naught. And now we have an expression for epsilon in terms of epsilon naught and a material property. So we said the index of refraction is always greater than or equal to 1 light always goes faster in a vacuum than it does through a material. We also said that the atomic susceptibility is a number that starts at zero in a vacuum, 
where there's no material to be polarized. And as your space fills up with stuff, um, the ability for an electric field to produce dipoles increases, and this value increases. So that's consistent with what we have for the index of refraction. This chi goes from 0 to a positive number. Um, the index of refraction starts at 1 and increases. And we can actually calculate the index of refraction because we look at what chi is. Chi is related to the polarization. The polarization is related to the displacement, which we calculated. The displacement is a function of the electric field. So if we know the number of density of atoms in a material, and we've calculated how each one will respond in the presence of an electric field, we can calculate the polarization. We can calculate the index of refraction. So you'll, again, you'll be doing that on your homework. Okay, so let's look at the uh, basic outline for doing that. I say far from atomic resonances, chi will be small. Can anybody explain that statement? Let's start. What does far from atomic resonances mean? Yeah, so the frequency, that's what we're far in frequency space. Uh, the frequency of the light does not, is not close to a resonant frequency of the material. That's the far from atomic resonances. So uh, if that's the case, what is the material going to do when the light goes through it? Yeah, the light's just going to go through. It's not resonant, it's not going to drive the interaction. You'll get very little displacement in the material. Okay. So very little displacement of the material means what? You can have a large material polarization, small material polarization, small. So if P is small, chi is going to be small. Okay. So far from atomic resonances, chi is small. Uh, chi is unitless. Right? It has the same dimensions as 1. It's unitless. Okay, so it will be small compared to 1. And if that's the case, I can do a Taylor series expansion in this square root and simplify the math that I have going forward in calculating the index of refraction. Okay, so we have 1 plus x to the 1 half. So that's going to look like uh, 1 plus 1 half x plus higher order terms. And that gives me an expression for the index of refraction. 
1 plus 1 half, this is x. I'm sorry, this is, this is not x. This is chi. So here's chi. Uh, go back to the last page. Chi was polarization, Ne delta x over epsilon naught e. So I have Ne delta x over epsilon naught e. And now N is a property of my material. It's the number density of the material. E is just the electric charge on my oscillator. If I'm talking about a hydrogen atom that is a single electron, I may have a covalent bond where I've got two charged ions and the total charge on each one is more than a single electron. Um, so that is specific to this particular example where I have a single electron in my uh, material that I'm displacing. Delta x is the displacement we calculated last time. We have an expression for that right here. And it's proportional to the electric field, so the electric fields are going to cancel out. Alright, so this is my result from last time. The displacement written in complex form. And when I plug that in for delta x, I get an expression for the index. So I have a complex index of refraction. So what does that mean? So there's loss, yeah. There's loss. Can you explain? So we might be tempted just to take the real part of this. When we deal with phasers, oftentimes the real part gives us the quantity we're interested in. Um, and that's certainly true. The real part will give us what we traditionally think of as the index of refraction. Turns out the imaginary part has some significance as well. Okay, so let's go through that. I guess. Uh, Skip ahead a slide to go through that. So let me write an expression for the electric field. So this is a, an oscillating wave of magnitude E naught. And here's the oscillation. I'm writing it in phasor form. It's oscillating in time, oscillating in space. That's a wave. And in general, any wave, optical wave traveling through space, will have a form that looks like this. 
n k naught n times k naught. So k naught is just 2 pi over the wavelength in vacuum. So n times k naught is 2 pi over the wavelength in the material. Or alternatively, you can say k naught is the spatial frequency in vacuum. n times k naught is the spatial frequency in the material of index n. So if we want to write our wave in this form, and n is complex, it may be useful to separate the real and imaginary parts. And that's what I've done here. Okay, so I've said, um, right here, I've said n has a real part, I'll call it n prime, and an imaginary part that I'll call n double prime. So I'm going to explicitly pull out the imaginary root. So n prime and n double prime are both real numbers, but n prime represents the imaginary part of the index of refraction. Okay, so plugging in n prime plus i n double prime here, I have a sum in an exponential, so I can break that out into two exponential factors. The one, the n prime part, I'll keep grouped together with my omega t, and the n double prime part I'll separate out. So now, this right here is just a wave. It still has the same form as what I started with. I'm just calling n n prime. It's the real part of that. So this n prime is going to tell me about, for example, the wavelength in the vacuum compared to the wavelength in the material. And the ratio of the uh, rate of change of the the time rate of change of the phase to the spatial rate of change of the phase is the phase velocity of the light, and that is n prime. Okay, so the normal definition of the index is they're related to the speed of the, of the light holds for this n prime. The n double prime, I actually had i times n double prime here. And i times n double prime times i. The i's multiply together to give me a minus sign. So I have e to the minus n double prime. k naught dot r. This is not an oscillation. It's not imaginary. It's easy to look at it, and it looks like uh, this term here. But there's no imaginary root there. And so this is just the quantity that gets exponentially smaller the further you go into the material. That's decay, exponential decay, loss. The presence of this imaginary part gives rise to loss. There were no imaginary part. This would be 0, this term would be 1, and I just have a propagating wave. As this imaginary part increases, I get loss, and the amplitude of this wave exponentially decreases. So that's very important for us because we're talking about absorption. And if power gets absorbed by the material, it's getting taken out of the wave. There must be loss. Okay, so we, we need to consider this. And we can relate the amplitude of the wave to the power in the wave. Um, the power per unit area is called the intensity. 
And the intensity looks like, uh, well, it's proportional to the amplitude squared. And the constants of proportionality have an epsilon in them, and we can write them with a, in terms of n prime as well. Um, really, all I care about here is this fact that the amplitude of the wave gets squared. Okay, so the amplitude of this, of this wave, this oscillation, is E naught times this term. Right? That's the amplitude as it decays going into the material. So when I square the E naught, I have E naught squared. When I square this term, I get the 2 right here. And so this is my exponential decay of the intensity. The intensity is decaying twice as fast as the field because it is proportional to the field squared. So this expression here tells us about the intensity in terms of uh, a parameter that I can find from my mathematical model, from the classical electron oscillator model. So I can find the imaginary part of the index. Now, that's great in theory. In practice, the way we usually observe absorption is we shine light through something, we measure what fraction of the power gets absorbed, and we attribute that to what we call the absorption constant, alpha. And we say, according to Beer's law, that the spatial rate of change of the intensity, the rate at which the intensity is changing as it goes through a material, is proportional to the intensity. That means there's exponential decay. And that constant of proportionality we call alpha the attenuation coefficient. So you may have seen a form like this either in chemistry class or uh, introductory uh, electricity and magnetism. And this is generally the way you'd come up with this uh, you'd relate these expressions if you were empirically measuring. You measure the intensity at two different points. That gives you a gradient. You have the intensity going in, and you say plot the rate of change of intensity and, and extract this constant of proportionality. So now we can relate this measured quantity to a quantity that we can calculate. Right, so you like, I can take the derivative of this, the gradient of this. When I do that, I get a minus 2nk0 coming out in front. This whole term in the front is the incident intensity. And so I get that the 2n prime k0 has to equal alpha. So the imaginary part of the index of refraction is essentially the absorption coefficient, just has slightly different units. You know the wavelength of the light, you know k naught, and you can go back and forth between the imaginary part of the index and the absorption coefficient. 
Okay, so we have um, an index of refraction. I think over here, I'm going back two slides. Um, you argued it has to look like this. Um, and so this form came from our uh, relation of the index of refraction to chi and then our substitution in chi of the displacement. So this is a complex form, but the imaginary root is in the denominator, so it's not easily separable into real and imaginary parts. Um, so what we can do is we can multiply the top and the bottom by the conjugate of that denominator. So let me go ahead and just do that. It's straightforward, but uh, it's worth sometimes seeing it done or doing it. So I'm just going to look at this term inside parentheses. So that's the functional form of my um, index of refraction. I said one plus this. So now I'm going to multiply the top and bottom by the complex conjugate of this. Clarity, I'm going to group the real and imaginary parts of that. And in the denominator, I've got this term squared, the real part squared. I have the real part here times that imaginary part. That's going to have a positive sign. And then I'm going to have the same real part times the minus imaginary part. Those terms will cancel out. Cross terms cancel. And then I got the imaginary part here times the imaginary part there. That minus sign together with the i squared gives me positive. So I get an expression then for the uh, index of refraction that has the uh, complex part in the numerator. So I can easily separate out the real and the imaginary parts. And what I've actually done in this slide here is I've generalized this a little further by adding up a contribution from lots of different well, 
consider a more complex material that it might have more than one electron in it, you might expect there's more than one resonant frequency at which different electrons can oscillate. Okay, so there's multiple frequencies and there's maybe a different density for the different, uh, different electrons. And so I've got uh, some number of terms for the different electron frequencies and the different uh, concentration of the electrons. And here's the real part, here's the imaginary part. Um, if I plot that real part, what I see is an expression that typically will look something like that for actual materials. And we call this uh, behavior normal dispersion, where the index is getting larger as the frequency gets larger. This we call normal dispersion. It's what gives rise to, for example, that if the refraction of different colors at different angles in a prism. Different frequencies have different indices of refraction. Therefore, Snell's law says the light gets bent differently for different wavelengths in a prism. And these regions right here correspond to the, uh, to the resonant frequencies, where the, there are these sharp transitions. And within that transition, you can see the index is getting smaller as the frequency increases. So we call that anomalous dispersion. And the reason we don't normally observe anomalous dispersion, there's two reasons. Hence, that's why we don't call it normal. Normal dispersion is the stuff that's not anomalous. What are two reasons we might not normally observe anomalous dispersion in everyday life? Okay, so the, for one thing, this line width is small compared to the total, total frequency band that we're plotting here for typical materials. And so just by, you'd expect that a, a relatively small number or percentage of photons would, would have the right frequency for that to occur. So that's one issue, one reason why we don't see that. There's another one, it's not really clear from the graph but uh, what is the absorption doing near resonance? What does the absorption look like, say, at this frequency compared to this frequency? Where is it higher? Mm, this isn't a plot of absorption. It's a plot of the... The, nor the ordinary index of refraction, the real part. In our classical electron oscillator model, what frequencies absorb the most? The resonant frequencies. Okay, and this, this all comes from that model, so without having to go through and study the math, the resonant frequencies are the one that absorb. So light at these frequencies tends to get absorbed by material. So you don't see it coming out. You don't see, you can't build a prism that has anomalous dispersion. Or you can build it, but you don't get light through it, so it doesn't function as a prism. So here's a corresponding plot of the 
um, imaginary part of the index of refraction. So the regions where we had those sharp transitions in the index correspond to large peaks in absorption. Okay, and we can, we can see that from the math. If we go back, if we look at the real part, we've got one plus, so we've always got this offset. And then we've got, as we go through the resonant frequency, this term goes through zero, um, but the numerator also goes through zero. And so instead of just blowing up and being very large because the denominator is small, when the numerator goes to zero, instead of just blowing up, it comes back to zero. Okay, and you can see that this term is squared, and that makes it gives it some symmetry around that resonant frequency. And the flip side to that, I guess I can show that here. This term just comes from the imaginary part of the index over here. And since it doesn't have this offset, there's one plus, it doesn't have the offset, um, the plot is near zero unless this denominator is small. The denominator is small near resonance when omega is close to omega naught. When that happens, the denominator is small. That makes the function big. So, you get so this plot is the imaginary part. Yeah. Um, it's not, there's no scale here, so you could say it's the imaginary part or that's alpha. They're directly proportional. Okay, so that's how we relate the model that we have to index of refraction and absorption. So two important properties of a material. And certainly if you have a background doing optics, those are some pretty important materials, properties. You buy a piece of glass, um, you want to specify the absorption and the index of refraction. Turns out there's a lot of things that we want to study using optics that aren't glass. A lot of gases, a lot of liquids, um, a lot of things that aren't uh, solid. And as a result, it doesn't always make sense to talk about some material property that assumes you have this solid of a certain density. Oftentimes, the density can vary tremendously. If you have a gas, right, the pressure in the gas, um, the density can all fluctuate greatly. And so instead of talking about the index of refraction of a gas, um, which can change greatly depending on the environment it's in. Sometimes it makes more sense to talk about uh, microscopic material properties. So not a material property of the, the ensemble, but of the individual atoms. And so sometimes we talk about the cross-section. The cross-section is to an atom what the absorption is to a material. Something with a large absorption is made of atoms with a large cross-section. Okay, so a simple model for what cross-section is, in fact, the actual model that we use to define cross-section, comes from having a 
volume filled with a gas of molecules. And we treat each molecule as being a sphere that's completely opaque. This is a very classical geometric way of looking at it. But in that instance, you can imagine that the intensity of light that gets through this volume depends on how many of those spheres you have obstructing it and how big they are. Okay, so if we zoom in, we can treat all those particles as being spheres. And we'll say their, their cross-sectional area is what we call the cross-section, sigma. So cross-section really means cross-sectional area of the spheres that we treat the molecules at. So sigma defines cross-section. It's going to have units of area. Centimeters squared is common, commonly the way it's uh, described for materials. And we can relate that to the uh, absorption for the entire material. So the cross-section is a property of a single molecule. The absorption for the material depends on how many molecules you have. Right, so um, if we want to talk about the intensity that's lost going through a thickness delta Z of material, that's going to come from um, multiplying the area of each individual obstruction times the number of obstructions. And that tells us how large of an obstruction, of a net effective obstruction we have, and the fraction of the total area of this, this, uh, this cube here gives us a fraction of light that we would expect to be absorbed as, as the light goes through it. Yes. Treating each one as perfectly absorbing. Okay. okay, it's not a wavelength. At this point, we're not considering any wavelength dependence. We're not considering the fact that you could have one of these hiding behind another one in the shadows. So the assumption is sort of that you have a uh, low density gas. And that's how we'll derive the cross section. Then we'll add in density effects and uh, wavelength effects. OK, so we look at the change in intensity from here to here, across delta z. We can write that uh, in a couple of ways. We can write it in terms of the cross section times the number of particles. That gives me the effective area of my obstruction. And divide that by the effective area which I'm illuminating, which is the area of the slab. And multiply that by the input intensity, and that should give me the amount that's lost. Okay, so the number of particles I'll call n. The, uh, I guess actually n I'm calling the number density, number per unit volume. Okay, so the volume here is a rectangle or a box of depth delta z, and has a cross-sectional area of l squared. This is a box L by L by some distance, and I'm going through a distance delta Z of it. So this is the total number of particles inside of this little 
rectangular region. Time sigma is the total effective size of the obstruction. And I'm going to divide that by L squared. That's the total area I'm illuminating to get the fractional absorbed power. And then multiply that by I to get the total absorbed power. So written as a differential, di dz. So divide the delta i by the delta z is minus sigma n times the input intensity. These L squareds cancel out. Sigma n times the input intensity. Well, I already had an expression for the spatial rate of change of the intensity. Uh, that was alpha, the absorption, times i. So I can relate sigma n to alpha, or sigma is alpha over n. I'm just relating these two expressions. Absorption is a property of the material, a bulk amount of material. Sigma is the amount per molecule. Absorption per molecule. So it's an atomic property. Um, as such, it's, I say it's independent of the number of molecules you have whereas the absorption is not. The more molecules you have, the more absorption you have. It's independent up to a point. Right? So I mentioned it, but can someone remind me in this model? Uh, why is it only independent up to a point? Jack? Yeah. You no longer can think of each one as being illuminated. Some are going to be in the shadows of the other ones. Um, this, this model sort of breaks down. Okay, um, so let's review. We had an expression for the atomic susceptibility. That's where we started today, chi. That relates the material polarization, so the inner material, how much charge sloshing around there is, relative to the external electric field that's driving that. Um, and we could calculate that from last week's derivation of the displacement of a driven harmonic oscillator. And we use that to calculate the index of refraction, and the imaginary part of that gave us the absorption coefficient. We then related the absorption coefficient for a material to the absorption for an individual molecule, and we call that the cross-section we usually just call it the cross-section. So if you have hydrogen, you can say, what's a cross-section for hydrogen? It doesn't matter how much you have. Um, and just as absorption is frequency-dependent, so the cross-section is going to be frequency-dependent. So our derivation just assumed it was, it was opaque, but of course it's only opaque at certain frequencies. Okay, so it inherits the same frequency-dependence as we calculated for the absorption coefficient. 
So if you have these two quantities, um, cross-section and, say, a number density, you can determine the absorption coefficient. Sigma times n is an absorption coefficient. The inverse of that is what we call the absorption length. How far you need to propagate through material until your intensity decays to 1 over e of its original value. Okay, so you'll encounter a lot of textbook problems, homework problems, where you're given a cross-section. That's something you can look up in a reference. And you're given a number density. That's something that comes from the experiment. You pump gas into a, a chamber. You measure its, its pressure and temperature, and you infer its number density. You can then calculate what the interaction length should be, what the absorption length should be. Um, not strongly. I think what we'll see, so it's frequency dependent, okay, because different, some frequencies will, will drive an oscillation of the, the charge, other frequencies won't. And what we'll find is uh, as you change the temperature, you provide kinetic energy and the molecules start to move more. And as they start to move more, the frequency of radiation in which they absorb gets Doppler shifted. So anything that emits or absorbs certain frequencies, when it's moving, those frequencies get Doppler shifted. So molecules moving in different directions and at different speeds will have different resonant frequencies. And what we've assumed up until now is that all the molecules are identical. When you start to have different resonant frequencies for different molecules, then we find that the absorption line shape is not just a whole bunch. Well, if this is the absorption line shape for a single molecule, and it's Lorentzian and it comes from the classical electron oscillator model, and you start to add up the absorption from a whole bunch of identical molecules, you're essentially excuse me, adding this line shape up, superimposing it on itself, and adding it up many times to getting to get a much stronger absorption. But now if you have a bunch of line shapes, the shapes may all be the same, but the molecules are moving at different speeds. Therefore, their Doppler shifted frequency, resonant frequency, is different. If you add up the absorption from all of those, you start to get a different shape. And the line shape, the net effect, of all those molecules will give a Gaussian line shape as opposed to a Lorentzian line shape. And that's called uh, inhomogeneous broadening. This is called, this is a homogeneous line width. This is called an inhomogeneous line width. And that's going to be a big part of, of what we study in the class. Um, and that's one of the big effects that temperature is going to have. OK, um, any other questions? Uh, that's right. So that's more closely related to what you would observe, but it's trivial to uh, you know, take your data and manipulate it to calculate the absorbed power. 
Okay, so let's just quickly look ahead at what we're going to do next time. Um, we're going to go start doing quantum mechanics, or at least uh, introduce the quantum effects that occur when we have absorption. So we'll leave the classical electron oscillator model behind. It's told us a lot of useful things. We'll keep coming back to it. But inherently, we have photons hitting atoms, exciting them into excited states. So we need to consider some quantum mechanics. Um, we'll talk about the probability that an atom gets, absorbs a photon. So instead of talking about the amplitude of oscillation, we'll talk about a probability of absorption. Of course, when you have a whole bunch of atoms, and you add up all their probabilities, uh, the effect is the same, we'll find is the same as what we calculate from the classical model. And we'll see that there's not only absorption, but then there's emission as excited atoms give off photons and go back to the ground state. And we'll relate the absorption and the emission for the molecules. We'll go through uh, what the uh, wave function looks like for a two-state molecule with a lower energy state and a higher energy state. We will introduce a perturbation. That perturbation is our optical driving field, our, our light. Okay, so just like we started with a simple harmonic oscillator and then we introduced a driving term, here we're going to start with the uh, unperturbed Hamiltonian in quantum mechanics and introduce our electric field that drives it. Uh, we'll take our solution for the uh, eigenvalues of our, our uh, quantum state, plug it through our new Hamiltonian and get expressions for how the amplitude of the different excited energy levels are going to change as a function of time. That's here. And going through a little bit of the math, we can say some smart things about how the amplitude will vary as a function of time. Okay, so we did that before for the classical picture. We had an exponential decay. Turns out this is an exponential decay. End up seeing very similar things. There's a few areas where they're different. Um, and yeah, that's next time. So if, if quantum mechanics is unfamiliar to you or it's been a while, you might just read ahead and next time. For the homework that it's due next Wednesday, we've already covered all the material. Sorry, say that again? You said we're yeah. the equations that we did yeah. in class. Yes. Where, where do we stop? Like, like well, the homework, <laughs> the, homework, the homework tells you what you, it wants you oh, to calculate. Oh, it's going to be online because it was. Oh, it, I haven't posted it yet. Okay. I'll do that uh, in the next hour. Yeah.